theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaquia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Hello, Dr. Joy. Hello, Dr. Amy. How are you? Doing well. We are in the midst of quite a series of conversations about having conversations. And I think that's what's really going to be valuable about this podcast today is digging into how to have conversations, even if they're tough. Yeah, Amy, when we truly listen to the experiences of others, we have the opportunity to engage in deep personal reflection about their lives and how it relates to our lives. You know, we all identify with something and we have different experiences and the more I learn from you, it enhances my experience and it gives me a greater appreciation for you and your culture. But yet we shy away from these conversations all the time. And in this day and age, it just really baffles me how we let these tough conversations get in the way of real progress. We can learn about each other and the values that we can bring right. to the table. And I can certainly say we have more in common, <laughs> like 90% in common than difference. And we talk about that so often, you know, how we got to where we are now is through similar experiences, our teaching careers, similar experiences, our family structure, very similar. So we have a lot of similar experiences. And I think that that's what brings us together. And I think the more that you and I have these conversations, the more we learn more about each other's identity. And I just think that brings about more respect and acceptance of each other's culture. And so we're going to talk to Dr. Tanya Perry today about how she helps people with tough conversations. Dr. Perry wrote a fabulous book with co-writers Steve Zimmerman and Katie Smith to examine how teachers can impact change for themselves and their students. This book is called Teaching Racial Equity, Creating Interrupters, and it's published by Steinhouse. Dr. Tanya Perry is a professor of secondary English education and serves as the executive director for Gear Up Alabama, and the Red Mountain Writing Project at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. In her roles, she works for equity, focusing on civically and justice-engaged teaching, service, and scholarship. 
Perry received her Bachelor of Arts in English Education from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, her master's degree in English Education from the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and her PhD in Education Leadership with a concentration in English and secondary curriculum from both the University of Alabama and the University of Alabama at Birmingham. In the academic year 2000-2001, Dr. Perry received the Alabama State Teacher of the Year. She currently serves in various capacities for the following organizations, the Research on Women and Education Executive Board affiliated with AERA, Cultivating New Voices, the National Writing Project, the Beloved Community, the National Site Support Team for the National Writing Project, and congratulations, she is VP-elect for the National Council of Teachers of English. Welcome to our podcast. We are honored to have you with us today. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me today. I am just glad that you asked me. I'm very honored. Yeah, that was a mouthful what Amy read. I am impressed all over again. Of course, we have a lot to unpack here. But before we get started, as Amy was reading your bio, one thing just stood out that you received the Alabama State Teacher of the Year. And that was such an amazing achievement. I don't know that people know what it takes to even be recognized for something like that. But since we're having this tough conversation, in fact, the first African-American teacher of the year in Alabama, how does that strike you and what does that mean? Well, Dr. Joy, let's unpack that just a little bit, right? Yes. (laughs) So the program, I don't want to misquote, so I want people to do their own research, and I'm just going to give a a generalization here. In 2000, when I became Teacher of the Year for the state of Alabama, it is my understanding that the program had already been in existence for 50 years. So the Teacher of the Year program is a national program primarily located, I would say, in D.C., and so the program is, is historically with the chief state school officers out of D.C. in that office there. And, and each state has to choose a state teacher of the year. And then from that group is a national teacher of the year. And the four and well, everyone who wins goes to the White House. And I went under George Bush, the, the second George Bush. Right? And so let's go back and let's talk about what does that mean in the state of Alabama? It meant a lot in our state. And during the time in which I was a state teacher of the year, I had an opportunity to travel throughout the state to all schools, rural, suburban, and urban schools, K through 12 and colleges, and had a chance to share the voice of teachers in lots of spaces, even business rooms and boardrooms where teachers are not always invited as the first line of of information. Right. What did it mean to me for being African-American? It meant so much. And it not only did it mean so much to me to be able to use my voice and be a black woman to share, but the state was so proud. The state was so proud. And African-American teachers were so proud. And teachers who were white were proud, as if we were happy 
to have representation outside of just white teachers in our state for once after a 50 year stretch, right? And it meant a lot. It even I can remember once going to a workshop or presenting a workshop for teachers and a teacher in rural Alabama, and she was a white teacher, she took an angel pen off of her chest and gave it to me and pinned me. She, oh, said, wow. may, she said, may the angels continue to watch over you as you tell the story of all of us everywhere. Oh, amazing. That is such an honor. I can say I feel the same way. My previous university, which was around 60 years before I started working there, I was the first minority faculty to receive tenure. And so I would hear a lot, oh, you must have been really honored, you know, all these things. And I, was, and I thought about it for a long time. And I was like, well, they should feel honored. <laughs> you know, Yes, because it's, it's a change, you know, not just for you, but it's a change. It's, that was a global change for Alabama. That was, you know, that was big. So I can see why all the teachers were really extremely happy and proud educators of all colors. That's just monumental. But before we get into having some of these thoughts about tough conversations. Tell us more about your passions right now. What are you doing right now? What are some of your passions? What are you working on? Yes. And I want to go back just one step and say, I love that I was able to represent the teachers in the state, but I never want to be the only teacher of color to represent the state. Yes. Right. Yeah. Because there is honor and being able to break the ceiling but there's more honor in order in being able to bring others along with you who can tell the story who can represent all the children and all the teachers and educators in the state so I was honored by that but I was even more honored that I'm no longer the only I love it yeah and so what am I doing now oh my goodness let's think about a couple of things so one of the first things I'm doing is I'm on the board of directors out of uh, Berkeley for the National Writing Project. So I get a chance to work with the National Writing Project leadership and the board, which consists of directors who are from the Writing Project, leadership from the Writing Project, but outside people who have an interest in the Writing Project as well. It's a very eclectic and very diverse group of people who are on the board of directors. Enjoying that and being able to participate in that and being able to work with Elise and Tanya and everybody else. The other thing I'm doing is, I, which is one of the reasons where I imagine we're here today that we're gonna talk about teaching for racial equity. And the book came out in April or May and it really talks about becoming interrupters and what does that mean? I feel like it's so timely. Who could have timed uh -huh. it, right? At a time where being an interrupter is... It has some consequences, but it's so necessary, absolutely necessary, because if we're going to represent all of our children, then we're going to have to stand up for what it is that they need and what it is going to take for us to be able to tell the truth about their histories, their present and their futures. And, uh, and what a good time for this book to come out that I wrote with Steve Zimmerman and Katie Smith. 
And then you also mentioned, I just won, won an election. I'm very honored beyond belief that I'll be a part of the NCTE leadership team and be able to work with literacy leaders across the country and internationally to, to make a difference, right? To make a difference and be able to tell those stories, be able to tell that research, be able to represent the families and communities that need us the most so that we can get our, we can really make an impact and, and be able to change our practices and share our practices. I'm so excited. I'm excited about everything, Joy and Amy. I remember when I was teacher of the year and peel back the curtain and people wanted to hear, I was like, wow, teachers are important, right? Mm-hmm. Now I'm peeling back the court, pulling it back. Wow, teacher educators, parents, communities, we are important. We've got a lot to say. You know, just every time I go somewhere, I'm going, wow, we're important. We make a difference. Every platform we get, every opportunity is an opportunity to share, to just enlighten others about the work that we do and how important it is. So I'm just excited, all of it. Yes, Amy? Well, I was going to say our first uh, interaction was through the National Writing Project. And that's also how I met Katie Smith and Steve Simmelman, who are co-directors of the Illinois Writing Project, And then being affiliated with NCTE, these are all my favorite organizations. And what I really appreciate is the advocacy piece and the statements that NCTE, for instance, has put out about equity and about inclusion and about the teacher's role. But we're talking about teachers being important, the community being important, and we have things to say but a lot of what we say are, are in tough conversations. Why is it so difficult to have tough conversations? What are your thoughts on that? You know, Amy, I'm going to go back to the, the book. So the book is written in chapters that are very informative. And we have amazing teacher writers and students who are also our co-writers in the book. So it has the teacher educators, it has the teachers and the students all telling the story. And between each chapter is an exchange, either with me and Katie or with Steve, but it's an exchange where there's email or a conversation that was really difficult to have before we wrote that next chapter. And so why is it so difficult to have these? I think there are a number of reasons. One is, is that uh, relationships are crucial and being able to know people and get to know people takes time. And we have to have those conversations and get to know each other even before we can have these kind of what I call intimate conversations, because it's difficult to share who you are and your most intimate thoughts about education and how you feel with someone that you don't have a connection to. So being able to have a connection with the people with whom you speak and get to know is critical in order to do this work. So sometimes the first thing I would say, Amy, is that sometimes we'll do this work in PD, for example, and then we'll start off with something as, uh, and then this is in a space where people are are not necessarily communal. I I feel like National Writing Project people are probably a little bit more communal, but these are in places where people are not as communal. We start with something that's very private, right? And people pull back. And I'm not sharing that. 
right? I don't, we don't share the same goals. We don't share the same histories. We don't share the same ways of thinking. Why would I put myself out there like that? I think that makes it very difficult to have a conversation unless you're already in a communal space. A second reason is that nobody wants to be seen as someone who gets it wrong. Mm -hmm. But what happens if we create a space where it's okay to get it wrong because the relationship is there and this person is going to help us navigate and work through this? You know, what happens if that's the kind of space we create? And I think, Amy, we've talked about this before. We try to recreate this with children, right? We take the time in class to create this kind of community because we want authentic discussion. We want children to be able to have the ideas pushed in some way. We want some thinking to perhaps be impacted, but it can only happen in a space where people feel like they can say things, people won't hold it against them, but they're willing to learn and listen at the same time. But as adults, we don't always do that with each Mm -hmm. other. We don't, we go, we go to PD and we just check, kind of check it off. We don't always look at it as an opportunity to grow, an opportunity to have some real deep and authentic conversations that can impact who we are and how we are in this space and other spaces. I think we take that for granted. And those are very difficult when we are, and we are, we are guarded. Sometimes we're just so guarded that these kinds of conversations seem foreign to us as adults. We're scared. We don't want to be perceived, like I said before, as being someone who gets it wrong. But I think we need to create spaces where it's okay to take some chances and people understand that if there's something that needs to be corrected or addressed or maybe even questioned, that space is the space to do that kind of learning. And we do that with our children. We ask them to take risks and we try to make the classroom community just that, a community where it's okay to take risks. But as adults, we don't like to put ourselves out there. And we either don't say something or don't continue a conversation because we're afraid we'll get it wrong. Or we don't want to look stupid. We're supposed to be knowledgeable and experienced. Right. Amy, you say we do. We encourage our own children to take risks. And when they do, we try to draw them back in, you know, sort of that. I told you to be friends. I didn't tell you to marry him. I said, be friends. You know, we tell them to take risks and then we try to reel them back in when they're out there taking risks. And they are the one who are catapulting this change, right? Because they are unafraid. When I think about back to my husband, my tall, dark, handsome husband who retired from teaching after 42 years, and this is a man of stature. He was at a school that was transitioning. So it was a predominantly white school 20 years ago. And while he was there, he he saw the changes. And by the time he retired, it was probably about 60% African-American, but the teaching population hadn't changed. He still had about 90% of the teachers were white females. And so whenever there was trouble, they come to his classroom and get him because it was like, They can't talk to these black boys or these black girls. So go get Mr. Brown so he can talk to them, you know? So, and then they would have professional development. And my husband, I wouldn't describe him as an interrupter. He's more of an agitator because 
he could never understand how someone that looked different than him would, could tell him about his experience and how to behave and how people should act. And so when we talk about these safe spaces, Amy, that you were talking about and having something set up that gives us the opportunity to share and talk, I think there really needs to be some protocol that's really laid out because what do we do as teachers? We bring our, our lesson plans and all of our things with us to, to PD. Come on, be honest. You bring all those things with you because you're busy and you're multitasking. And so it's, it's difficult. It's, it's, it's difficult for teachers to have those conversations. And I just imagine how difficult it must have been for you starting off and the transitions that you went through when you were having a conversation with your colleagues as you wrote this book. So I think about those challenges and barriers that you had to break to get, get through this. And how do you bring people together? How do you bring teachers together to talk about race and other critical issues? That's a really good question. We've got some examples in the book from teachers who do equity work in their schools. And one in particular is Tina. She talks about starting an equity group in a school and she admits the first one she started did not work. And then people began to drop off, not come. And then she tried again. And what she did this time was different. First, she made a personal plea to teachers, her colleagues to come and that this work was not just for teachers of color to talk about race and equity inclusion and belonging. This was a conversation for everyone. The second thing she did once she got together is she began to share more about herself and how she came to the work. This idea of I'm coming to the work for the students. Let me tell you what I've seen. In our school, we have so many kids who are in special ed, but the children that I see that we've referred to special ed are mostly African-American, but I see other children who have some of the same challenges, but they're not referred to special ed. Why are we referring so many children of color to special ed? Let's unpack that. You know, let's talk about that. And then she says, well, let's get to know each other and let's talk about what do we think special ed is and how did you come to know special ed and what is it about special ed that we really value and who really should be there, right? And then, and why are so many children of color in this space? You know, and then she began to really unpack and talk about different things related to race and how teach as teachers, we decide certain things, how we decide who's gonna be called in a certain situation, how, we, how do we choose a curriculum, the things that we stay away from. And the second time her equity group worked better than the first time. And there were some components that she talks about in the book. One was her personal ask. Two, when they got together, they began to talk about their own lives first before they went into the issues of the school. And then third, that as a leader, she began to share more about herself and how she came to the work. And so the people who came to the work began to see her as an advocate and someone who really cared for the students and really wanted to listen to them as they struggled to work through this work as well, and not as someone who wanted to, to blame them. See, the idea of shame and vulnerability, you know, that's, that stuff is real. 
You know, when we do things and we feel shame, then we don't want to participate anymore. But the thing is, is that there's a difference, you know, being vulnerable and being able to share uh, should not bring shame, but should bring us more openness and more appeal with other and connectedness to other people. But shame can keep us apart, right? It can keep us apart. It can keep us from connecting to other people because we are ashamed of how we do things and or don't really want to admit it or don't want to seem like we're inadequate. And then we don't want people to hold it against us. You don't want to hear that story again, you know, later. And that's why that space is so important to create. So in the book, one of the first questions I asked Steve was, why me? You have other books and you didn't ask me for those. But this book about diversity, inclusion, and equity, you were asking me on this one. And he was very honest about that. We didn't know each other as well back then. And so he probably would not have asked me. So the relationship wasn't there. But two, he felt like we would learn a lot from each other in this context. And then I said, I asked him, well, if you have another book to write and it's not about this and this, I'm not sure that this part's in the book, would you still connect? And his answer would be, his answer now is yes, we're partners for life around different work, right? But um, those aren't easy conversations to have. I certainly didn't want to feel used right, for my Blackness to write this text. I didn't want that for myself or my community because I want this book in the community to be a way in which it gives us options for being able to talk to each other. But I'll be honest, there are people, I, I, didn't, want, I didn't want people who were Black to believe that this book didn't represent them too. I, I don't want that. This book is all about people of color and and other people as well having discussions. And I want to make that clear when we wrote this book. You talked about making yourself vulnerable. And I agree, we can't help others be vulnerable unless we are vulnerable ourselves. And we need to feel safe in doing so. But we often hear people talk about, well, being comfortable and making people comfortable. But Somehow, I think there's a difference between feeling comfortable and feeling safe or somewhere in that mix is vulnerability. How that's another thing to unpack. How what is that difference and where do we slide in between those? Oh, I love this question. You know, I've been doing a lot of thinking about this being vulnerable and being in a safe space. And some people say there's no such thing, right? But being, I believe that there can be spaces that are safer than others, right? But the being vulnerable and being in a safe space and having discomfort can all reside and exist the same at the same time. And that's what you want. When you, you don't want comfort because comfort implies agreeable sometimes. And what I'm saying here is, is that uh, there, there may be some disagreement, but not in a way that's confrontational, but it may be that there are different perspectives. But we want to be able to grapple with those. I was in a class once, and, I, and, and it was with a professor, and he was talking about leadership. And I'm going to do this graphic, which may or may not show up in, our, in, in the podcast, right? But he talks about on the left-hand side is how you might enter a situation, and then he says on the right-hand side is how you get out of a situation. 
And then he's talking about the middle part being really messy if you're going to have any change from the beginning to the end. His point was that if you start and there's nothing messy that happens, then you're actually coming out the same way. It's like going through a car wash in your yes, car. Yes. Still dirty. Right? I love that analogy. <laughs> Yes, the car is still dirty because whatever the middle grappling part was supposed to be, it didn't quite get you messy enough where you had a pause in your thinking, there's some interruption in your thinking, a reconsideration, and then learning can't take place. See, learning is messy. And if, uh, if we as adults are going to learn about each other, who we are, our processes, and really have some uh, some challenges with even our own thinking, we're going to have to go through this grappling process if we want to come out on the other side different, mm-hmm. right? And that's, that's, that's part of the image that I have about this work. It can, the grappling part may be uncomfortable. You may not feel as if everybody agrees with you. Your examples that you give may be one-sided, but that's all supposed to be in the process. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a part of the process. Then there's somebody in that group who helps interrupt your thinking by a question or giving another scenario by, um, at, you know, by having a, a tag and asking follow-up questions. All of those things are what I call the messy process that get us to the point where we get interrupted in our thinking and come out different on the other side. Now, I feel like I went on a tangent. Did I answer that question? I love how you answered that question because I think that interrupting our thinking is crucial. I mean, I, how am I going to learn if I say the same thing and say the same thing wrong every mm-hmm. time? I mean, mm-hmm. I've said some really dumb things that I didn't know were done at the time. And fortunately have had very dear friends and colleagues. I had sincere relationships with who called me on the carpet for saying something that was just dumb (laughs) for lack of better term, just an ignorant phrase or something that I needed to be just brought aware of. No, that's right. Even though we are in a society where we really value diversity, equity, and inclusion, I had a colleague from the past that said, you know, I don't see color. Everybody's the same still. And the the idea there was that she was trying to say sameness is here. You know, her her heart Mm -hmm. was in the right place. Mm -hmm. I had Mm -hmm. to say, well, I really do want you to know I'm brown and black. Mm -hmm. You know, don't ignore that I'm a person of color. Don't ignore that I'm a black woman. I want you to, to see me. And then she would go, she went, really? Well, I do see you. I said, but you just said you were colorblind. That's exactly, exactly saying something. But also if you have dear friends and colleagues who, who can at least make the assumption that the heart was in the right place, that it was out of, it wasn't coming from a bad place. So the relationship was there. I can get corrected. I can heal from that. The colleague and other people can heal from that because a relationship is established because we can assume, make some assumptions about words being out of love and not intentional 
hate or meanness. So if we can make some of those assumptions, I think our conversations can move forward in a more positive direction. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The, I read something the other day. It was a quote, and I can't remember which author. Maybe you can help me with this. But in essence, what it says is that when we meet people, we decide if we like them or not. And most people can give out hate really very fast, uh-huh. you know, or I don't like this person or I, you know, this this person gets on my nerves. You might not even know this person very early. But the thing is to switch it. What if we gave out love more readily than we gave out disagreement or hate? Right. What happens if we gave somebody the benefit of the doubt before we said, I don't think that that's right in that person. And you blame that person rather than saying, you know what? I give that person the benefit of the doubt. They've not done anything to me to think otherwise. I'm going to get to know this person. So eventually maybe we can discuss this. Right. Right. But we give out it's so much. We have been conditioned. Yes, we've been conditioned. Change, Change is difficult. Yes, yes. And we have been conditioned to, I think, uh, think the worst rather than the best initially of folks. And that harms us when we're trying to establish these relationships and, and get into the messy work, right? right? right. And you're going to probably take this part out, but it's a, a tangent, but it's such a good tangent. I have a hairdresser and we we are friends. And my hairdresser, I was supposed to get braids today. And she called mm-hmm. and she said, well, I don't have time for you today. I need another date. But yet there were lots of other people in and I made my hair appointment three weeks ago for break. Mm-hmm. So immediately I went, what in the world? She's doing somebody else's braids. What's wrong with me? Is she trying to say that she doesn't like me? Does she want me to go away? I'm not her client anymore. Turns out I get to the, the shop today and she has par- a paralysis. Oh, wow. She has experienced a paralysis and the way that I wanted my hair takes three to four hours. Mm-hmm. And so if she does other people plus me, it's a lot of work on her. Right. Mm-hmm. And because she's been sick, she needs to make the most money she can during a day. And that might be multiple people, not just me for a particular day. But look how I just assume that she's right. trying to get rid of me. Is she not like me? I mean, I made this appointment so but she never told me she was sick and she didn't have to. We have a relationship. But I tell you that in that that's how as humans we are. Mm-hmm. That right? we, think the, we think the worst first. And, and that's what generates the buzz and the conversation. You know, instead of me bringing something to Amy's attention out of love, I can just say that Amy's a racist because Amy said blah, 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 and perpetuate that. At my last university, we talked about, we talked about being interrupters. You would have had to be have tenure to be able to speak any truth, good or bad. You would have had to have tenure. I would like to acknowledge Governor State University for at least going beyond that. Amy, I think you're on the professional development team where there is professional development for the entire university. We have guest speakers come in and we involve students, student leaders, faculty and staff. And oftentimes you don't get faculty and staff at the same table together. And we have speakers talk about a lot of DEI issues because we have them. And so great for Governor State to start that work, but we have a long way to go, especially in our educator preparation 
programs. You talked about one way of introducing this is just being vulnerable. I was a did a presentation for an elementary group, oh no, it was a student teaching group about cultural diversity. And I was sharing my upbringing. I was talking about, you know, growing up in the inner city of Chicago. I remember eating sugar bread, sugar water. You know, I was telling them, they were like, how do you make sugar bread? I was telling them how you make sugar bread. And that was dessert, had powdered milk. And, you know, I was going on and on and on. And I had some students even email me afterwards telling me they were sorry for my experience. And some of them, they looked so sad and I, I couldn't understand why they were looking so sad. <laughs> it's like, it, I didn't have a sad childhood. My parents were working <laughs> and I didn't feel like I had a sad childhood because these were my conditions, but because for them, this was so unlike their middle-class conditions. They thought that I had a horrible experience, you know, and I had to explain that, you know, there's no reason for you to give me sympathy. I had a good childhood experience. I said, just think of COVID. You got a lot of middle-class people right now eating sugar bread and sugar water and standing in line for food. And so it was just, it was just the time, but it broke down some things you know, being vulnerable, being able to share, it broke down some things of people being willing to talk about their own experiences, which is, which is sometimes difficult. So one of the strategies that I bring to the classroom is that I like to, so they can show their diversity is to bring a me bag. So make sure you bring five things that represent who you are and tell us how that represents who you are. And it really, you know, people, they get engaged. They like finding things that are different. So as much as sometimes we don't like difference, these young folks, they like doing things that are different. So we have this great opportunity of working through our young educators for them to go way beyond where we have. So I'm wondering what kind of strategies for teachers do you recommend where they can learn about each other's backgrounds? I love that story. It reminds me of another story that I'm just going to tell you about, but not go through all the details. Yeah, I, we want to hear it. <laughs> okay. So, you know, Steve and I have a lot of real conversations and I had, we had a very similar situation and I don't think he would mind me saying this, but he had intimated that people of color were all trying to come to white neighborhoods, trying to get out and that that was success, which is predominant notion, right? And I think people want to be safe. I think people want to have a communal uh, experience. I think people want to be able to take their kids to school and not worry. But I don't think that everybody's trying to move to a neighborhood that's white, right? I think that that's a, a misnomer now. So I just stopped him and I said, you know, people of color are not necessarily trying to move to spaces that are that are white. Everybody wants some basic things. They want to be able to take the kids to school, want to be in a communal environment and being accepting. And that doesn't necessarily mean being in a white neighborhood, you know, where it's the, the experience of the person who's white is, is the norm, right? And the experience that you talked about, Joy, is, is that your experience to you was the norm, right? But when we juxtapose the norm 
then we change what we believe people are striving for or what people want or how people are to be, right? And he was like, well, Tanya, I said, no, no, we, you know, that's, that's not necessarily what people are striving for. You know, that's not what people are striving for. And there are lots of examples of indigenous people loving being in their space, right? Lots of, lots of people who are of different races, ethnicities, being among people who are like them, as well as people moving to other spaces. But I think it's hard sometimes when we begin to normalize uh, one group as what we're trying to do or strive for. And that's one of the problems we have with language, right? Where we've normalized one language and privileged over others and now that's the one we strive for. So if you don't speak that one or if you don't have access, like we believe you should to that one, then something's wrong with you. And the idea here is when we're talking about teaching for racial equity, we're trying to say your language at home is so valuable. How you communicate with your family is valuable. And so when you go to school, we have to figure out ways in which we can also value it there. We teach academic language so that you have choices to make about which spheres you go in and how you use language, but it is not to take away your language. It is not. And it is meant to privilege your language, but we're just giving you, school's giving you options. So when you go in a space and somebody doesn't speak this home language, if you decide that you want to use this other language, you have access if that's what you decide to use, right? But to say that I just find it so disheartening. I had, you know, students who come from Latinx backgrounds who traditionally didn't practice the home language because they didn't want to be seen as their home culture. Yeah, I find that so sad that being who you really are is not something that you want to portray to other people because our country has said who you are unless you are part of the normalized group is not not good enough. And that's what we need to change. And that's what teaching for racial equity is about. There's so many strategies that we can use to help people get to know each other. Conversations are important, so important. One strategy that I have used is that I ran a, a workshop with teachers on cultural competence and I wouldn't let them get do a sit and get. You know, it had to be mixed with some other stuff. And one other thing that we did is that I took them where they were, their culture was not the norm. Took them lots of places where their culture was not the norm. Oh, you should have heard them. Oh, oh, well, how am I supposed to place my order? I don't know that language. You want to figure it out. Well, um, how am I supposed to ask for directions? I, you know, I, I, I don't know how to, you're going to have to figure out how to communicate. You are in the communities now. This is not the community of school. This is the, their communities. And now you have to figure out how you are going to navigate in this space. And it was a beautiful time. It really was. It is when you can juxtapose what we uh, school has as, as norm, what we've made norm. But when we go into the communities and families, that's not necessarily the, the case. And then what do you do in that space? How do you do that? The second thing is I'm not, a, you know, had to find safe ways to do it. But when I was a teacher, I made home visits. And they could be visits that you make at the local cafe or the local traditional store, the, the convenience store. 
you know, so you're not entering a space where people feel like we're judging them or that we're making uh, comments about their own homes and they don't necessarily want to share. But the thing here is, is just really being able to get out and get with communities and families. It helps you understand so much more. And um, I found that so interesting. Even as a teacher educator, I spend some time in the communities with the students, getting to know the practices, the communal practices of that community, right? In ways in which I feel like the teachers can navigate and, and still do so doing projects in the community where they are going to that community. The community is not always coming to them. I think that that's so important as a, as a strategy. The last one I'll give is in the book, we talk about students and children, K-12, teaching us how to be. Let me tell you, our K-12 students are so smart. I believe uh, half the time we're the ones that are behind and they're way ahead of us. They are way ahead of us. And so and a third way, a third strategy is bringing in students and have them tell their stories about equity and diversity and what their lives are like and how they use their own platforms to extend and what are some of their concerns that they have in schools and what are some of the things is that, that we as teachers are not doing that they wish we would do. And one example in the text, where were two. One is Dion. Dion was a, he started a group called I Solutions because he really wanted children to be able to come up with their own solutions and not go to guns and violence as a way to solve problems. But his teachers didn't even know he started the group because we never asked the question. We never asked the question. How much more history, math, science, English could we have taught him had we connected to his home life and his interests? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And there are many examples of that. Many examples of that where kids are doing their own things, but we're disconnected as schools with the things the kids are doing that they really are making some strides, whether it's one-to-one, small groups or doing different things, you know. And as adults, we can actually help them craft that even better and more impactfully but we're, we're not always having those conversations. Well, I want to bring us back around to both the National Writing Project and NCTE. Are, any, are there any last thoughts or things that you wanna share about your hopes for your roles at, in these organizations? These organizations that really reach into and rejuvenate teachers. You know, Amy, I'm, I'm hoping that part of my role will be to continue advocating for these kinds of conversations and supporting teachers as they begin to interrupt in their own spaces. NCTE and NWP, National Writing Project and the National Council of Teachers of English, have been tremendous supporters of teachers and being able to do text selection in the way they need to to teach students being able to help kids have their right to their own language. You know, those statements are powerful and inviting guests in who really do mirror the lives of students, authors who talk about what students care about, how they live and be able to write literature that really resonates with children. So I'm hoping that part of what I will do is continue to do that work and also continue to work with us as adults, right? to be interrupters and to have those conversations that are so impactful. I just don't think we have enough conversations. And like I said, I think, I think we're scared. I think we don't, don't want to be judged. I think 
there are not enough safe spaces that have been created for us to have these conversations. And we're responsible for those spaces and establishing those. But there also has to be work that's been done. People of color can't do all the work to make all the changes, but yet people of color can't teach everybody. Everybody's got to come to the table, you know, reading some, talking some, thinking some, so that there's a rich dialogue with everybody. But we're going to all make mistakes. I've got to put a plug in here. I told Steve one day, I didn't think that's the way he was going to be and that he needed to change how he wrote something. He said, I'm not doing that. And I said, why not? He said, because that's not who I am. You're thinking I'm one way and that's not who I am. I am an interrupter and an advocate and have always been. And let me tell you some stories. And then I had to pull back and say, you know what? I made an assumption. Right. I made an assumption. And I'm glad to hear about your stories where you did stand up and advocate for someone or other, lots of other people who were different from who you are. Right. So it, it goes, it does go two ways. Mm-hmm. Well, I really loved having you with us today to have these conversations, to help us help our listeners start the conversations. How do we even get started? And it's really through relationships. It really starts there. All right. And I really hate to let you go because I'm loving the story. So I'm hoping that we can have you again. There's a ton more topics that we want to discuss with you. And I just love the stories and I can't wait to meet you face to face. Oh, I can't wait to meet you, Joy, and be again with you, Amy. Invite me anytime. I could talk about this forever. It is, <laughs> I absolutely my life's work. And before I became teacher of the year, one of the things I was doing in my classroom is that every kid had an independent project to make a difference in the world at age 12. Wow. At age 12. And they had to make a difference in the world. And then we had a community group that took a bus after school to make a difference in the community, different places. Right. You know, and I bet bet those students are making a difference today. If we could find them, I would love to ask them. Well, thank you so much for being with us. And I think we're going to have to find those students because I bet they have some great stories to share too. I'd love to. And that would be interesting as a follow-up. Well, thank you for having me today. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson. We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching. We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you, our listeners. Did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory probably this time. Uh, practice. Until next time, we're Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy.